Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. When his spitfire of a mother was 95 years old, journalist and filmmaker Dave Iverson made a split-second decision. He would move back into his childhood home and become his mother's primary caregiver. It would prove to be harder and more fulfilling than anything he could have imagined. In a new book, Winter Stars, Iverson recounts the many years he and a dedicated crew of professionals spent time taking care of his mother through the good days and the bad days. Iverson's a former host of Forum, and he rejoins today for a conversation on caregiving, the Parkinson's he's been battling for years, and the love all around us. That's coming up next on Forum. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Adelaide Iverson loved her husband, her family, and the sports teams of Stanford University. After the death of her husband and with her health declining, her son Dave Iverson moved in with her. Fitting her care between making documentary films and hosting this show, Forum, on Fridays, there were highs, Stanford games among them, and also lows, tearful, angry, sad, confused lows. The book that details those years, Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, and Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey, is a tender, honest work that both honors Adelaide Iverson's fierce spirit and contends with the crushing burdens of long-term caregiving. It also asks us as a country why the necessary work of elder care falls so often to immigrant women of color. A friend jokes with Dave that it's not unusual to be taking care of your mother, but what is unusual is a white man doing so. So here to talk about his journey and what he learned about caregiving, we're so pleased to welcome Dave Iverson back into the Forum studio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Alexis. It's a great pleasure to be here. So tell us about your mom, Adelaide Iverson. What was she like? Hmm. Well, she was a remarkable person. Um, people used to always say she was a, a force of nature, um, and she was. Um, she radiated a kind of power and energy about her. She was very much a take charge kind of woman. She was in a different time, in a different era. You know, I think she would have had any number of of, uh, wonderful professional careers. But she always made a difference. Um, She was always trying to make a difference in her community. She was a a teacher as a young woman, like most women of her generation when she married during World War II. She quit work, raised her sons. Um, She's a powerhouse volunteer, um, you know, tutored at the uh, 
county jail to help women get their GED. She was um, a champion of the League of Women Voters. She was engaged in all kinds of civic duties and, as you said, a passionate Stanford uh, fan. Um, and she always she always radiated the sense that she could accomplish things and that she'd be okay. She had a certain self-assurance about her that even when my dad died, that she'd be okay. And I think that allowed the rest of us in the family to assume that she'd always be okay. Um, and so when that started to come undone a bit, I think we were all a bit taken back because she was always so there. And they did. They had a very long marriage, right? I mean, yeah. I think your line in the book is, people always thought my parents had a great marriage because they did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a great love story. Um, they met while um, teaching in the same junior high uh, in Gross Point, Michigan, outside of Detroit. My dad had uh, dropped out of college uh, during the Depression uh, because his dad lost his job in a steel mill in Buffalo where he grew up. And so he'd worked in radio in the early days of radio to support the family. And then he'd eventually gone back to college, didn't graduate until his 20s at the University of Michigan, late 20s in the University of Michigan. And then they met teaching. Um, and then my dad went off into the Army, as he said, the you know, the least likely soldier ever. Um, and they had this beautiful correspondence, which I discovered years later um, after my dad died. Um, all my mom had saved all of his letters. While also kind of saucy, too. Very yeah. saucy, yeah. <laughs> my dad was this button-down, very professorial type. He was became a professor in his most of his career at Stanford. Um, but yeah, I, w- I would read these letters, and he would he would. It was just this this dad I I never knew. You know, he would say things like, uh, "So uh, Adelaide, you don't wear sheer blouses." Such a pity. It's like, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, Dad. Um, You obviously, you had a pretty different life from either of your parents. You grew up in one of the world's great uh, idyllic suburbs and uh, in Menlo Park in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. My folks, um, uh, my dad went back to graduate school at Stanford in 1946 after he got out of the Army. and uh, so he was in his mid-30s by that point, and his career was, you know, late in starting. And he was fortunate enough to plow through graduate school, get his doctorate, and get a job on the School of Education faculty at Stanford. And uh, with great fear and trepidation, they bought this post-war, you know, classic ranch-style house in Menlo Park uh, in 1950 for all of $15,000. And we grow up in that sort of classic post-war environment where everyone, everything had its place, everything was secure. Um, and I think we also understood, Alexis, something that's maybe different than, than later generations and that, you know, as boys, we knew we really weren't their priority. They loved us, but their priority was each other. You know, they loved each other. And, and in many ways, I think that's kind of a, a healthy thing, you know, to know that actually you're not the center of the universe, as so often I think can happen when you're raising kids. Um, And so we grew up in this wonderfully um, idyllic, um, but of course, very privileged circumstance. It was, you know, all white, middle class uh, America. And, um, and so that was that was the life in which I I grew up. Later in your father's life, he had to contend with uh, Parkinson's diagnosis, which then it turned out that you would share. Yeah, yeah. 
I remember getting a letter from my mom. Uh, I was a VISTA volunteer, the old equivalent, domestic equivalent of the Peace Corps in the early 1970s after I graduated from college. And I got a letter from my mom uh, saying, um, your dad's been diagnosed with Parkinson's. And I didn't know what the words meant. You know, I had to look it up in a in a dictionary. Uh, remember those dictionaries? And... and um, and read this definition, you know, this neurological condition for which there is no cure. But, you know, I was 22, and I thought, well, okay. And then I saw my dad three or four months later. He really seemed to be okay. The, the, the medication, which is still the gold standard for, for Parkinson's, had just come up, Carbidopa Levodopa, brand name Cinnamon. He seemed to be doing fine, and I, I sort of went, okay, well, it's going to be okay. And he really was okay for a good 15 years, which is often the case with Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. And then uh, my older brother um, was diagnosed as well um, in the uh, early 90s, and then a dozen years later, um, I was as well. And I continue to be very fortunate. It's a very idiosyncratic um, condition, and I'm doing um, really well. But it's... it's um, it's a it's an interesting tie, and my mom, in turn, became Alexis. My first real lesson in what caregiving means, you know, she was in the way she took care of your in father. the way she took care of my dad, and in the way she was fiercely loyal to him, but also in the way in which she didn't really accommodate. Uh, his condition as a to, to not do things, you know, it was like, well, come on, we got a Stanford basketball game to go, you know, get your jacket on, Bill, we got to go, um, and that's actually, in many ways, the right approach. My my cousin, who's a physical therapist, used to cite my mom when he worked with Parkinson's patients as actually that's you don't want to do everything, you want you want people. To, it's all about staying in motion, but she was so determined, and she was. And when my dad, at the end of his life, was in uh, an assisted care facility because she could no longer care for him and I was living 2,000 miles away, um, she would not broker anyone not treating my dad as Professor Iverson, you know, and, and, and making sure that he was cared for in the best possible way. So when it became your time to become a caregiver as your mom's health was deteriorating, I mean, you say in the book that it was really... Almost a snap decision that you were going to upend your life and move down there. What what had to change for you to become this kind of caregiver for your mother? Yeah, I know it sounds odd. I was I was fifty nine years old at the time. Um, This is back in two thousand seven, and my mom had done really well. She lived independently for thirteen years after my dad had died. but she had um, begun to decline. She'd had a bad case of pneumonia. She had to be hospitalized. Um, and it was clear that she really couldn't manage independently anymore. And we were very close. We had a very close relationship. I was living here in San Francisco at the time. Um, I was single at the time. My wife, my my uh, daughter was uh, grown and happily married, living on the East Coast. It was just this circumstance where I felt like I could. You know, it was a unique combination. I mean, I, I don't think anyone should feel like it was, it was like everyone must do this, but I could. I, I had flexibility. I hosted what you're doing now, but only one day a week. I was making films. I had flexibility. I could do it. And I felt like, well, 
I can do this. I had a, uh, my, my now wife, Lynn, and I had a very close relationship, but we weren't living together. And, you know, she was understanding. And so, and so I, you know, I say it was a 10-second decision, and that's true. I really felt, like, well, yeah, my mom and I get along great. I'll get, have some help while I'm at work, and it'll all be fine. And, of course, I was hopelessly naive. But there's some, <laughs> there's some good things about that, because I think if you, if you know everything you need to know, you might not make those choices. Well, and you also had a very special relationship, even among your mother's sons, to her, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's, we did. I mean, my, both my brothers, uh, um, we were all equally loved, and, and my brothers um, are, were very close to my parents as well. But my mom and I, 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 I think it's, it's true, had a, had a special um, bond. We understood each other in a way. We had a different kind of uh, relationship. And I tell a story in the book about how that my mom used to love to tell that when I was a little boy, you know, two, three years old, I looked up at her one day and said, uh, Mom, we sure like ourselves, don't we? <laughs> and and that was true. You know, we had a sort of, you know, there's a, there's obviously some ego in that. But we we did have that, and I and I think that while so often the one who becomes the caregiver is, of course, most often the female of the siblings, um, and and it has to do also, of course, with geographic proximity. In my case, I think it was just it was a, it was just kind of a natural, and I think my brothers all knew that too. Um, I'm just loving imagining my own mom hearing that story. She's going to love that one. We're talking about the challenges and rewards of caregiving with Dave Iverson, writer, journalist, filmmaker, former Friday host of KQED Forum. And we'd love to hear from you. Are you or have you been a caregiver? And if so, what did you learn about yourself in the process? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. Or you can email your thoughts on caregiving to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Dave Iverson after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the challenges and rewards of caregiving with Dave Iverson, a writer, journalist, filmmaker, former host of this show on Fridays, author of the new memoir, Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, an Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey. Also, he's going to appear at the Commonwealth Club in conversation with KQED's Scott Schaefer 
on Thursday, March 31st at 5.30. So you can look that up. We'd love to hear from you. Are you or have you been a caregiver? And if so, what'd you learn about yourself or your family or the world in the process? The number's 866-733-6786 and the email's forum at kqed.org. Dave, when did you realize that caregiving was going to be a whole other phase of life? When did that naivete start to fall away? Was it like day one or hour one? Well, I I, I think one of the things that I, I somehow just hadn't figured out was that um, caregivers, I was fortunate to have someone who was coming in um, about 30 hours a, a week so during the day so that I could continue to work. It somehow it never occurred to me that they that professional caregivers actually have lives too, you know, that it, that if their kids get sick, they can't come in. Um, and so I was all of a sudden realizing, like, I've got to figure all this out. I have to have all these contingency plans because no matter what I might have important to do today, that goes away if you have, if you have to make sure someone is able to care for the person you love, in this case, my mom. So that happened. I think also it was interesting because I've kept a journal a lot of my life, and I kept a journal during the time I was with my mom. And it was really surprising to me later, Alexis, to go back and find that within six months of the time I'd started caregiving, I was already getting frustrated. I was already getting weary. I would remember a journal entry where I was like, I am so worn out. I just don't know if I can keep doing this. And this is, this is after six months. And I had it about as good as anyone could have it. You know, I had someone coming in during the day. I could work. I had my partner and wife, Lynn, who I would see, you know, it was, but I was still um, exhausting. And I think it's because the nature of caregiving is, is relentless. You never quite know what's going to happen. You think you've got it all figured out, and you don't. You solve a problem, and that works until it no longer does. And there is, there's an intensity to it that, um, that, that is ongoing, and there are frustrations with that. And it's exhausting. You don't sleep as well. All of those things pile up. Yeah. What was a typical day and night for you? Like, what, what did it look like? What were you having to, to do? Yeah. So mostly in the mornings, um, my mom would often be up early. She was, until she was almost 100, a voracious reader of the New York Times. So I'd trot outside and get our copy of the Times so that she could read it and, and make her a cup of coffee. I didn't have to do much in the mornings. I, went, I was able to, to work um, because we had a caregiver coming in. I would do the shopping. I would make dinner. I would be with my mom in the evening. If there was a Stanford game on, we would watch that together. We would, or, or, you know, she, I used to joke, she would watch two channels, PBS and ESPN. You know, she, that's, that's what she would do in the evening. We'd read together. We'd do all those things. Um, but as time went on, it would get harder, especially at night. Um, it wasn't safe for her to go to the bathroom alone at night, and so we put in a, a little bell that she could ring, like a doorbell, and that would ring during the night. It would be sort of like having an alarm clock, that, you, you, but you didn't know when that alarm clock would be going off. And so I'd get up and help her in the bathroom and then go back to bed. And so those things would, would um, begin to be more, more wearing over time. And over time, also just her, her although she had always been very sharp, her as she began to suffer from dementia and that became more uh, progressive, um, those moments became much more challenging too. Yeah. 
mean, my only real reference point for this is just caring for very small children and the way that that exhaustion kind of can get to you. Like you can, you're like, oh, this is easy to do for an hour, but almost unthinkable to do for like a hundred days. Yeah. Was there a low point for you in which you realize, like, wow, how am I going to keep doing this? Yeah. Oh, sure, many. Um, and I think some of that. I mean, caregiving reveals a lot about who you are. It 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 it, it you, you're aware of your strengths, but you're also very aware of your weaknesses. Uh, one of mine is is both a strength and a weakness. Is I like being in charge. I like making things work. Well, you know, you're not in charge. You are not in charge. You might think that you're driving the car, but you're not. And you and you often feel like you don't even have a seatbelt on, and someone else might grab the wheel at any moment. So, you know, that that becomes very frustrating. And it also I would get I would get exhausted and frustrated and I'd get angry. If you told me that you're going to wind up yelling at your mom, um, I would have thought there was no way that could happen. But I did more times than I'd, I'd like to acknowledge. And, um, and, and it can bring you to your knees in that way because you think, oh, my God, I'm trying to do everything I can and I'm not sure that I can continue. So you had some professional caregivers who really became uh, integrated very deeply into your life and family and, and vice versa. Can you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, yeah. I was extraordinarily fortunate. Um, I had early on a, a, a wonderful first caregiver who left after not too long a time because she decided she wanted to have another child, um, you know? And then uh, and then you you have this intense worry. Nothing worries you more when you're a caregiver than like, oh, no, no, what do I do now? Who do I find? I had another wonderful caregiver um, who, who came in, a woman named uh, Mele Tafa, who was um, a Tongan-American and um, uh, was wonderful. And she was with me for uh, a number of years. And then she, too, wanted to start a, a family. And then when my mom was hospitalized a second time uh, and wound up being in a, an assisted living facility for a while until she was strong enough to go home, there was a woman there who I knew the first time she walked into my mom's room that this was this – was, she was equal to it. Um, my mom was, was – she was a tough cookie and she was a forceful person. But Eileen was her match, Eileen Kahn. And I asked Eileen if she wouldn't mind if she was interested in an extra part-time job. I knew I knew where she could go, and so she did. And she was remarkable. She was super skilled. She she was a certified nursing assistant. She knew all about how to care for someone, but she also understood my mom, and she also knew how to to be with her and tease her and cajole her. And they had a fantastic relationship. Although they could they could be at each other sometimes too. So she was remarkable. And then I had another remarkable woman who joined us soon after as I started needing more help, um, uh, Sinai Latu, um, who um, was, was – Eileen had a very forceful personality. I, uh, Sinai was, was a softer personality. But she was wonderful with my mom. She was a fan too. She would watch Stanford games with her. She would get her to church on time on Sundays, which I was often – tardy about doing. Um, and they became, um, they really made that house a home again. They really brought a kind of 
love and compassion and an understanding that getting old is part of life's bargain and that you need to be there for those people. And, um, and they brighten my life um, and my mom's in, in ways that, um, that saved us, I would say. Yeah. Let's bring in our first caller, Dave. Let's bring in Babette from Marin County. Welcome to the show, Babette. Hi there. Uh, thank you so much for this topic. So many of my friends are going through this very, <laughs> this very passage themselves right now. And uh, I recently uh, let go of my father in 2020. And what I found most remarkable about uh, caregiving for him over the course of 10 years was uh, was a um, an ability to actually gain a lot of flexibility and release a lot of my judgments about who he was mm. and um, how he didn't serve me in my ways. Um, mm. And it became quite the dance between us and it was, and ultimately was very beautiful. And we both fell asleep together in the end. Um and I, I just feel like, um, and, you know, he was politically in total opposition to me, except for where I could find those inroads and mm-hmm. speak his language. He was an older man, yeah. you know, an older man. <laughs> and he needed to be able to, um, or I needed to be able to uh, speak his language for a little bit rather than win a fight or win my, my place in his life. Mm -hmm. And um, in that process, uh, a a great restoration for both of us occurred, a great uh, deepening of trust and and willingness to accept each other. So I I, am, you know, it's a difficult process. I couldn't have done it without caregivers. It was exhausting as it was. Uh, And so hats off to all you caregivers out there. Yeah, and, thank, um, thank you so yeah, thank much you for, Babette, that, for for that perspective. And I, you know, Dave, thinking about your your book and Babette's experience, you also had some things to learn about when to just you didn't have to be right. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, you were used to being right in your life, and you had to learn when it didn't matter. Yeah, which was yeah. often. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking as Babette was talking about um, uh, her relationship with her dad and how that brought them closer together. I think. In my case, my mom and I were already quite close, and then there was a kind of um, there was there was stress and tension in a way that there had never really been before, and it took me a long time to work through that. And as you say, I'm someone who who likes to be right, likes to explain to you why, in fact, I'm I'm right, and um, wants to make sure that you understand why I'm right. And when you when you're caring for someone, that just really doesn't matter. It's not important to be right. It took me a long time to figure that out. And when someone is beginning to be somewhat diminished cognitively, it doesn't matter at all. And I would spend way too much time often trying to correct something my mom would say that wasn't true and to and to not fully, um, rather than to sort of put myself where she was and to understand that from she was what she was saying was true from her point of view. And to be able to accept that, to put yourself in that person's place and say, that's 
their truth that they are saying. So that if my mom would say something that was completely wrong, like I was left in the bathroom all alone for hours and hours by our caregiver, well, that might not have been factually true. But from her point of view, it was. She had, in this, in that story, she had dozed off for a bit while sitting on the toilet. And it must have felt to her like, well, I was left for hours and hours. To, to put yourself in that place and to understand that someone is now looking out into the world, this unsettled, for someone who, had, like my mom, had always been so on top of things and no longer was, how frightening and concerning and how you articulate that. It, 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 to be there for that person and to hear that person and to accept who she is, not who you want her to be, but who she is, is what is what caregiving in the end is, is so much about. We're talking about the challenges and rewards of caregiving with Dave Iverson, writer, filmmaker, former Friday host of KQED Forum. He's the author of a new memoir, Winter Stars. We have some just absolutely beautiful comments coming in, Dave. I want to read just a, a couple of them before we get to our next caller. Martine tweets, I've never been a caregiver to an elder, but I learned by caring for my children that after the initial burst of love chemicals, the very act of caregiving builds love in every action. I thought you looked after kids because you love them, but my acts of care built our bonds, kind of reversing the, the causality we assume. Uh, Claire writes, I'm a nurse working with patients in the hospital going home with hospice care. I also cared for my own mother until her death last year. The cost of caregiving here in the Bay Area is overwhelming for most families. And in these post-COVID times, hard to find. Most families are not prepared and do not know that Medicare does not cover at-home caregiving costs. Thanks for lifting the curtain on this huge and unseen problem. And please mention that money for senior care was in Biden's Build Back Better program, taken out by Republicans. And of course, Dave, these were issues, even for someone who's had a great career and whose parents bought a house in Menlo Park in 1950, it was still difficult and expensive and financially stressful to, to do this caregiving. Yeah, yeah. We don't have a plan for elder care in this country. We do not have a plan, as, as Atul Gawande um, says in his, his book, Being Mortal, you know, uh, hope is not a plan. And, and that's sort of where we are. We hope, we hope we're going to figure it out, you know, and, and that, that doesn't cut it. I mean, you know, I, I think I, as I said earlier, I had it about as good as one can have it in that in that I could still work. I had caregivers coming in, um, but that was largely because my mom had it at a decent retirement, and then we had this golden goose egg of a house that was that we could draw upon and 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 bring in care because it is extremely expensive, and you wind up paying. Early days, we were paying, you know, three, four thousand dollars a month. Toward, by the end of my mom's life, when I, we needed care constantly, it was um, twelve to fourteen thousand dollars a month. And, you know, so what's our national plan for that? Well, it, you know, it, it needs to be better than well, well, make sure your parents buy a home in Menlo Park in nineteen fifty. Then you'll be fine, you know. But that's where we are. Well, and on the flip side of that too, well, twelve or fourteen thousand dollars of out-of-pocket expenses is a lot for a split between a few people. It's also not actually a great salary in the Bay Area, right? Right. No, I mean it's and caregivers aren't paid that. In twenty nineteen, according to the Brookings Institution, the average care for home health care workers and, and care providers was twelve bucks an hour. Um, you know, it, and and I was 
fortunate because we had resources we could draw upon to pay the people who are coming in much, much better than that. But we don't honor that work, Alexis. We don't honor what that provides. And at least in the Bay Area, in the South Bay, where we were in Menlo Park, the, the bulk of that um, caregiving community, in my experience at least, was from um, immigrant women of, of color, Pacific Islanders mostly. Um, and we don't honor that. And I think that, you know, when we think about when we debate immigration in this country and we think about, well, we want people who come in to be highly skilled, you know, meaning like Silicon Valley type skills. My response to that is, yes, we do want people to be skilled. But what skills are those? How about the skill it takes to take care of someone we love? How about the skill it takes to make sure someone doesn't get a bed sore? Those are incredibly valuable skills. That needs to be honored and supported. And we need to make sure in this country that we care for those people because otherwise, what kind of country are we? I want to get to a few more of these beautiful comments. Robert writes, taking care of my mother in her last days. We did the New York Times crossword together, watched the World Cup together. And one day I told her a story confessing in high school We climbed to the top of the water tower around the corner one night, looking at the Manhattan skyline. She responded with a twinkle in her eye, asking me to tell her more naughty stories. (laughs) Elizabeth writes, I cared for my mom off and on for years, but mostly towards the very end of her life, the last year. I learned so much about her and about myself. Although I was working full time from her home, going back and forth to my own home with my three teenagers, we got to spend so much good time together, just talking, enjoying lunch on her porch, watching birds, doing crossword puzzle, watching movies. I also took care of her physically, bathing and bathroom needs, meds and food, doctor's appointments. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but also one of the best. She passed away at the end of 2020, and I think I'm still recovering. Mm. Thank you for that, Elizabeth. We're talking about the challenges and rewards of caregiving with Dave Iverson. He's the author of a new memoir, Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, and Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We're going to get to more of your calls after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the immense challenge and the immense reward of caregiving with Dave Iverson, author of the new memoir, Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, An Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey. 
If you want to hear him again, he's going to appear at the Commonwealth Club in conversation with KQD Scott Schaefer on Thursday, March 31st at 5.30 p.m. Let's bring Naomi from Walnut Creek into the conversation. Welcome, Naomi. Hi. Thanks so much for having me and for having this discussion. Um, I feel like I'm in a pretty um, unique situation. I'm in my late 30s. I have two toddlers, and I have the uh, wonderful experience of being able to observe my mother, who is in her mid-60s, take care of my grandmother, who is in her (laughs) mid-80s, and we all live within 20 minutes of each other. So it it definitely creates a very interesting dynamic because it's wonderful for me to see what that level of care um, actually looks like being exhibited from my mother to my grandmother, um, while also trying to support not only my grandmother, but also my mother and give her some respite. Um, it's like this care circle that's going completely around between, you know, my mother, me, my sister, etc. You say, like, I'll take um, grandma, you take the kids? <laughs> yes, yes, we call it a kid pro quo, you know, where my mom will get some time off and then I'll get some child care on the back end. Um, so it's immensely rewarding, and I love that my toddlers are able to see an intergenerational um, relationship like that. Um, I would say on the challenging side, though, to your to your point that you guys have articulated, it is extremely exhausting. Mm-hmm. It is very draining. And I would say at times, you know, there's a little bit of resentment there because I know my mom wants to be more available to the grandbabies, but yet she's kind of caught between this. I can't go, I need to take care of my mother, but I also want to enjoy that special period in my life where I'm able to be a grandparent as well. Mm -hmm. So it just, it really is a nice experience and it has allowed me to better plan for when my parents get to that age of needing more care um, and being really thoughtful and intentional about that so that it's not something that just sort of springs up on us. Um, but it's something that we can actively start planning for now, um, knowing that that is something that's going to be needed in the future. Hey, so, Na- thank Naomi, you how are, uh, I just have one question for you. How are you making sure you get some care and get some rest? So, you know, that falls completely off the table. <laughs> I will say I'm, ter- I'm terrible at that. So I most likely, I'm usually the, the last person on the priority um, totem pole, But, you know, you try to carve it out between having a little bit of downtime. My husband supports um, a lot. We do have a part-time nanny for our our toddlers, so we're able to get a little bit of downtime. But it's it's constant. It's it's ongoing. And I do worry um, just about how my mother is managing, so I definitely step in a lot more there. And then I also want to support my grandmother as well. So it's just one of those periods of time where you don't want to – um, for lack of a better term, you don't want to be selfish in terms of thinking about yourself because you do want to be there for that person. But it's a catch-22 because you also need to preserve and self-care right. and make sure that you're functioning optimally as well. So if, if I had the answer, I would share it, but unfortunately I don't. <laughs> well, I hope you get some rest, Naomi, and thank you so much for that. I, Dave, I assume that sense of exhaustion and putting yourself last on the party list is something that you uh, struggled with. Well, yes, of course, it's true. Um, I th- I think you know so, a, a cliche you often hear people say is, um, well, you 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 know you you can't take care of anyone else unless you take care of yourself. 
Well, that's not true at all, actually, <laughs> because caregivers do that all the time because you have to, you know. Um, and and so, and again, um, I I had it I had it good, and and to an extent, our our, our caller does too because of that mutual support surrounded by that family. I love that idea of the the care circle. But so many people who are in caregiving don't. They're all alone. They don't have supporting family nearby. They don't have the resources to bring someone in. You know, again, this is a question where the inequities of our current times are laid bare. The pandemic revealed a lot of that. Caregiving does as well. And so, it's it's especially for those who are in this solo, um, then then it's almost impossible to care for yourself um, while you're taking care of someone else, and that's why we need to look at this in a new way. Yeah. Let's bring in Catherine from Davis. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. I agree with everything Dave is saying. Thank you so much for the show. Um, just quickly, I made the decision. My mother is 100, 101, wow. and um, her five children are between the ages of 68 and 85. So all of us uh, are not quite in the shape we need to be in to be caring for our mother, but we did not have the financial resources to have the caretaker come in, and yet we did not want to put her into a nursing home. Yeah. And yeah. so December 2019, I made the choice to give up my job, give up my apartment, and move back to the East Coast, mm. where I moved from 40 years ago, mm. to take my turn to care for my mom, thinking that she was, you know, her days were numbered. I guess <laughs> I was thinking that it was going to, you know, she was, we, we had to hospice come in at that point. The doctor, her visiting nurse, said she qualified for hospice. And so since uh, 2019, she has been part of the hospice program, but she is still alive and fairly well and fairly in uh, uh, some, you know, good mental state. Which is a blessing. However, what I my point of so 2019 March of 2020, the pandemic came and we were in lockdown together for you know I don't know how many months. Anyway, about a year later, I fell in this awkward uh, way, broke my foot, and I feel like the universe was telling me you need a break. Yeah. And so they broke my universe broke my foot, and I had to leave and come back to California. For eight weeks until my foot healed, and then I went back again. Anyway, long story short, my point being, what I realized most is that I lost my relationship with my mother mm. as a daughter while being her caretaker. It's so, so hard, you know, because you, it's two different things. Being a daughter, having a relationship as a child to your mother is, you know, was a very, very different experience for me than being her 24-7 caretaker. And that really made me sad because we had a lovely relationship as a mother and a daughter. But when I became her full-time caretaker, I was really missing that relationship with my mother. And I noticed that. And, you know, I think that's another one of the challenges when there's so many of trying to do this work of, you know, caring for, for our, um, you know, elder parents. So Absolutely. that was just the point that I wanted to make. Everything else that Dave said, I agree with a thousand percent. So. Dave. Thank, thank you, you for so, your show. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine, for that perspective. I mean, Dave, how did you stay your mother's son, even while you were it's a, also a it's, a, it's a wonderful point um, that she makes. Um, yeah, you 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 do begin to feel like you're the care manager and the caregiver, and 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 less a son, or in her case, less a, less a daughter. 
I think that is something that um, we all uh, struggle with. And, you know, her mom has been on hospice for two years. My mom was on hospice for two years. When I moved in with my mom, she was 95. I thought that was going to be a short-term assignment, too. She lived to be 105. So you don't know how long this can go. And in the end, though, Alexis, I I got to a point where I felt like I, I really can't be here every night or every weeknight anymore. I took I did take was able to take weekends off the last several years. And it happened one night when I just I was building a fire for my mom because she loved a fire. And um she kept saying that Sinai hadn't taken her to church and I knew Sinai had and I said, Yes, she did and she No, I didn't go to church. Yes, she did. And I finally blew up and I yelled at her and I said, Sinai did take you to church. You just don't remember. And I, and I remember feeling like, what am I becoming? You know, I, I'm I'm not being the loving son. I'm being the angry care provider. Um, and that's when I decided I had to be there less. And so for the last two years of my mom's life, I was there um, just two nights a week and um, portions of four days a week. And that allowed me to become a son again. Um, again, I was able to do that. So many, so many can't. Yeah. You did. I mean, I think when people think about the last years of their parents' lives, they want to reach a, a place of peace, yeah. a place of rest, a, a, a sense of closure. Um, in your case, you did reach that place, I yeah. think. And I was hoping maybe you could read for us what I what I take from the book as being the moment where you were like, yes, this is closure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, it happened during the last our last Christmas together. The last Christmas, my mom um, was alive, and my mom was always restless. She always wanted to do things. She never lost that sense of I wanting to make a difference. Part of what was so hard for her was feeling like. I'm not who I want to be anymore. She kept kicking at the sides of her hospital bed because she wanted to be in motion. But on this Christmas night, something um, was different. And so I'll, I'll read from that passage. I knew right away on this December night that she was in a different place. There wasn't any restlessness. She seemed quiet and calm. She looked to be, quite remarkably, at peace We just sat there for a long time holding hands, and I felt a wave of tenderness come over me. And after a while, my mom looked at me and said in a voice that was soft and only slightly slurred, You look wonderful. And I told her she did too. And then I said, We make a good pair. And she smiled and said, What a pair. And then we sat for a while, my hand on top of hers, just sitting together, nothing more. And then she turned her head to me and said, I feel lucky. And she said it with more clarity than anything I had heard her say in recent months. And I told her that I feel lucky too, lucky for all that she had added to my life and to the lives of those around her, and that I would always remember what she had taught me. And then she said it again, I feel lucky. And so I asked her if she could tell me why. And there was a long pause. 
And then she looked at me with eyes as bright as winter stars and said, Because there's love all around. On that Christmas night, I felt something I hadn't experienced before. That while my time with my mom was still unfinished, our journey was now complete. We had endured our bursts of anger and frustration, but over time, our deep and abiding connection had always held. We had found a kind of steadying, and while the currents of time and age had taken us into a territory we'd never imagined, we kept traveling, and that journey had carried us to our truest destination as mother and son. It had brought me to the bedside of someone I loved so that I could hear the deepest of all truths, that there is love all around. That's just beautiful, Dave. Thank you for, for reading that for us. And I, we have, you've touched a nerve with a lot of our listeners, and we have so many beautiful comments coming in I just want to get to just just read you more of them, Dave. Mm. I, I think it's really a way Thank of honoring you. this experience. Uh, Amy writes, as a caregiver to my husband with dementia, I can relate to Dave's experience. While taking care of him at home with the few hours a day of in-home support we could afford, one day I had an epiphany and discovered the meaning of life <laughs> for me. <laughs> Every day is going to become more difficult, so I was going to look for beauty in every touch. Every form of connection we had, knowing I would miss even the hard times once he was gone. We hear so much about caring for elderly parents. 40% of spousal caregivers die within one year after or even before their loved ones. Dave, I wanted to ask you, like, do you feel more prepared either to be a caregiver again or for your own yeah. death? Yeah. Such a good question. What she wrote is so true. The The great beauty of being a care provider and being with someone you love is that if you can, you can experience those moments and treasure them for what they are because they're moments, because they'll go away. And if you can be present for those and take those in, there is so much that can that can come from that. Um, there's so much beauty in that. Because caregiving in the end is a very intimate act. It's so physical. It is, it's all about touch, whether that's the spooning of food or the cleaning of a body, of, of holding someone or wiping their brow. It's, it is, and, and to treasure those, I used to tease my wife that um, I've done this. Don't you dare get sick because I'm not doing this again. And four months after my mom died, my wife was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Fortunately, she's doing incredibly well. She is an amazing, remarkable, strong, beautiful woman. Um, and so we're so fortunate. I didn't have to become a care provider for her. I'd like to think I would have <laughs> muscled <laughs> up aced and, that test. And, and, and done it. But I don't know. Um, 
And, you know, I think about my daughter. Do I want her to do for me what I did for my mom? I don't know. There's part of me that would say, well, yeah, that'd be kind of great. But I also, um, so I don't have a great answer to that question. I do feel a greater sense, though, of kind of why we're here maybe and what life is for and that what matters can matter most. Just before we have to go, how did... Adelaide Iverson eventually passed from from this life. Yeah. I got a call from my, I was not at the house. I got a call from Eileen and she said, David, come. It's time to come. And so I drove down from my home, Lennon, uh, my home in, in Oakland, uh, down to the South Bay. It's late at night. Wondering if this really was the moment. And I got there and a, someone from hospice was there. And, you know, I asked the proverbial, how much time? And she said, you know, I know your mom's been remarkable, but not much. And those next three days um, were incredibly precious. You know, Eileen and I would sort of take turns. Sanai at that point was being treated still for, for uh, her own breast cancer, which is its own story. But she came over too and... Um, and then, um, my, by the time I got there, my mom was no longer speaking. And, um, she, I asked Eileen what her last words were. And she said, I want to go. And Eileen thought, well, okay, you're ready to go. And, and then where do you want to go, Adelaide? And my mom said, downtown. <laughs> and then, which was very fitting. Yeah. But then soon after, um, she did it indeed draw her last breath, and I was able to be with her, and I will always be so glad for that. We've been talking about the challenges and rewards of caregiving with journalist Dave Iverson, author of the new memoir, Winter Stars, An Elderly Mother, An Aging Son, and Life's Final Journey. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and and touching all of our listeners, Dave. Thank you, Alexis. Really a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This has been Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with guest host Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.